Welcome to the Middle East Lawn Governance Podcast. Middle East Lawn Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. This is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today I'm lucky to be joined by Francesco Cavatorta and Hendrik Kretschmar. Francesco is a professor of political science and the director of the Center for Interdisciplinary Research on Africa and the Middle East at Laval University, and Hendrik is an associate professor of comparative politics of the Middle East and North Africa at the University of Leeds. Hendrik, Francesco, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for hosting this. No, thank you guys both. It's, it's, it's great to have you on the podcast. And the two of you recently co-edited a, a wonderful special issue for MELG that focuses on multi-party coalition governments in the Arab world. And I'm really excited to you know, delve into some of the key findings on these coalitions, but maybe we could start with a, the bit of background. Um, I was wondering, Francesco, would you maybe like to explain you know, where the idea for the special issue came from and how it came together? Sure. Yeah, well, Hendrik and I have, have worked together in the past and uh, we kind of always wanted to do something else together. And uh, we have overlapping interests when it comes to uh, political parties, elections, the way in which governments function. And we uh, had this kind of discussion about that we could do something quite new, looking at coalition governments in, in the Arab world, something that has been largely unexplored or at least underexplored. And we we thought that there would be a kind of an interesting, innovative way of doing this, which was to uh, pair up scholars and uh, get them to co-author pieces in order to focus on themes rather than countries. So when Hendrik and I first thought about this kind of type of special issues, we always had in mind that, you know, a lot of special issues are, are there's, a, there's a one running theme and then different experts, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, focus on one single country and explain that particular case. What we wanted to do instead was have, of course, a running theme, which was coalition governments, but we also wanted to explore sub-themes and we have a number of sub-themes that could be explored through comparing countries, in fact. So try to avoid the single country case, but to have two countries, and therefore an expert of each country, in conversation in order to uh, contribute something innovative to the theme rather than saying something about the country. Obviously, something is said about the country. It's, it's inevitable. But at least it's in a conversation with somebody else who's looking at a completely different country. And, and, and I guess the basic ideas were, at one level, it was to ensure that there is a degree of comparability between cases within the same region, even though this comparability might not appear as doable or as feasible right away. And the second one, which was the broader objective, was to de-exceptionalize the Middle East, you know, following from calls from, you know, Mark Lynch, Andre Bank, and a lot of other scholars who have been trying to say, well, you know, look, what, what happens in the Arab world can be compared to what happens elsewhere. There are dynamics, tendencies, concepts that, that can travel, that can, that can be tested. And we decided that, you know, that looking at the formation of coalition governments was, was one of them, or coalition governments broadly, because we don't simply look at formation. So that was kind of the, the rationale, if you want, behind, behind the special issue. Um, so I'm not sure if Hendrik wants to add something to that. I, I just wanted to say that I completely agree that it's been an absolute pleasure to work with such a wonderfully diverse 
group of colleagues. When we conceptualized the, um, the special issue, it was really important to us also to have a, a fairly equitable balance when it comes to gender, uh, when it comes to uh, early careers versus established scholars, and also a, a good region-wide spread. Uh, and I think we've established, uh, we've managed to sort of get this over the finishing line. The, the one thing I'd say about the way we conceived our special issue, particularly with regards to a thematic approach, and then uh, a two-country comparison per article, that was fairly high risk because we did, to some extent, pair strangers. So we really forced people together and it could have gone horribly wrong. But all of the contributors told us, you know, that this was really mutually very beneficial, was very interesting, uh, even though some of these country comparisons are a bit wild at first sight, right? You have Yemen uh, and Tunisia, you have uh, Palestine and Iraq. Uh, you, uh, and so it, it looks a bit methodologically like a most dissimilar case design ultimately, but that's exactly what it is, right? So these countries are really distinct in many aspects of their politics, of their culture, of their history, but they come together on one of the aspects of coalition governments that we wanted to look at. And the product is really a great one, I think. So as I say, you know, it's high risk, but it paid off in our case, I think. Well, it sounds like a very unique process. I feel like normally you get given a topic and you go, oh my God, how am I going to fit my case into this theme? And this instead, you know, sounds like a situation where you go, oh my God, how are we going to compare these two cases? So I'm wondering, you know, if you if you if there was any learning from this process, you know, this fairly unique pairing up of authors. I think I think what one thing that we learned, I think, is that inevitably, despite the pairing up and despite the idea that that the two authors should converse with each other and then converse with the others as well, uh, you know, sort of there's a kind of two levels of conversation. Some pieces read, you know, as if they were a bit kind of distinct, you know, when one part on one country, one part on on, on the other country that. But I think that was a risk that was worth taking in a way, because despite, you know, some pieces, as I said, being maybe reading a bit, you know, country A at the beginning, country E at the end, and then some sort of conclusion, it's not really like that when you read all the pieces together. You can pull out strings that you can see, and they apply kind of across. And that's how then in the end, we decided to, to also proceed when we started thinking about, well, what does this teachers. Uh, From a personal level, I think, in fact, it was a great idea to do this because I think we put in touch colleagues who maybe did not know each other or knew each other only by what they had read, rather than uh, than being kind of forced, as as, as Andrew said, to work together. And I think these are kind of partnerships and collaborations that then can, that you can build on. You can build on what we've done and what they've done to maybe do other things with other people in other projects. So I think it's also part of this idea of making the network of people working on these kind of issues larger, allowing them the space then to, to grow their collaboration elsewhere if they, if they want to. I think that was something that was not entirely unexpected, but it was something that we were kind of pleasantly surprised in a way, that they all worked in the end quite well with each other. And of course, you also paired up yourselves for an article in the issue, which is a super interesting piece because it provides sort of a an overview of the spectrum of coalition governments in the MENA. So I was wondering, um, Hendrik, could you maybe give us a you know a glimpse of some of the the key features of these coalitions? 
Yeah, no, uh, thanks for asking. Um, I think first off to say is that this is distinctive from the other five contributions in the sense that it takes a, a broad macro level perspective and comparative perspective, focusing on three distinctive areas uh, of coalition governance in, I think, 11 country cases and one federated region. That's the region of Iraqi Kurdistan. And in total, it covers, I think, 60 plus coalition events. And the areas that we cover are coalition formation, coalition composition, um, and coalition duration and durability. Uh, And really what this article tries to do is to give a first good overview of of some of the key characteristics that make up coalition governments uh, in the region. And we, we don't claim by any stretch of the imagination to be comprehensive. You know, it's almost like giving colleagues food for thought. Yeah. Where can where else can we look? Uh, what else can we explore? These are the first impressions that we have of coalition governance in the Arab Middle East. I also want to say in this context, by the way, the analysis, the research is based on original data. We collated an Arab coalition database uh, for this piece of research, which comprises these 60 plus coalition episodes um, and covers a period between 1990 and 2023. And that this database is freely accessible through the University of Leeds uh, open access data repository. So whoever wants to can have access to this database and build on it. We ourselves are moving ahead with further research in this field and have already expanded on this database. So if colleagues are interested and want to get in touch with us, by all means do. We're happy to and we are actually eager to share uh, the, the data and the database. So what then are some some of the key macro level um, features of coalition governance that we uncovered? Um, And I'd I'd like to sort of speak to all three aspects um, that we explored uh, in in our analysis. That's coalition formation, composition, and also duration and durability. The first thing to note, and that might almost seem self-evident, is the fact that prevalence of these kind of governments is very common in parliamentary and semi-presidential systems across the region but not in the presidential system of government. Uh, Of the 60 plus coalitions we've observed, 43 occurred in the region's parliamentary systems and 18 in the region's semi-presidential system. That again chimes very much with expectations in the literature. Uh, It's quite clear that parliamentary and semi-presidential systems feature parliamentary dependent prime ministerial cabinets that offer very strong incentives for coalition formation, basically, particularly if there's no overriding electoral winner. When it comes to coalition formation processes, we uh, found that on average, it takes coalitions uh, 3.5 months to form. When it comes to understanding regional variance, duration of coalition formation, and particularly uh, above average delays in coalition formation, uh, and we have some cases where really the coalition formation has dragged on. I mean, cases in point include Iraqi Kurdistan. In some cases, you have 100 days of coalition formation. Uh, Iraq also, you know, the last coalition formation was incredibly tedious and took almost uh, a year, if not a little longer. So if we look at above average duration in coalition formation, we propose that there's a couple of factors that play into that. One is the number of political parties involved in the coalition formation, and we find a statistically significant correlation between bargaining delays, as we would call them, and the number of coalition parties 
uh, involved. And that's very much in line with broader theorizing on coalition governments. We also think that uh, the political context matters. So bargaining delays tend to be, for instance, more pronounced in post-transitional uh, contexts, uh, which feature nascent but also at times highly volatile party systems that are likely to produce bargaining environments in which the parties uh, or the partners do not necessarily know very much about each other and also each other's preferences and objectives. And an example of that is, for instance, the bargaining environment in early post-Saddam Iraq in 2005. Uh, there's also a role that is played by sectarian and ascriptive identities. Um, so rather than being tied to ideological distance in terms of economic left-right divisions, for instance, uh, we find that bargaining delays are particularly pronounced uh, in cases where there are deep sectarian divisions and where hence there's a lot of horse trading between the different political fractions, protagonists along sectarian, tribal, ascriptive lines over policies, over veto powers, over influential government portfolios, resource allocation, you name it. Yeah. Follow-on research, um, and this I think is really interesting on the part of coalition formation that we've done since this special issue has come out, has also shown that timing is a matter. So post-election coalition formation tends to be longer uh, than in that in-between elections. One hypothesis would be that in between elections, you know, often what you have is you have defections or you have uh, additions. So you don't have a, a formation of an entirely new coalition and hence this process tends to be crisper. But also really importantly, that uh, bargaining process take longer in parliamentary as opposed to semi-presidential systems. So on average, in a semi-presidential system, it takes 39 days for a coalition government to form, whereas in parliamentary systems, 137 days. Yeah? And that might have something to do with the, the importance, the significance of the executive institution and possibly also regime supportive parties in the semi-presidential systems. So when it comes to um, uh, composition and coalition political fragmentation, uh, our data um, shows that so-called what we would call uh, class surplus coalitions seem to be the norm. Uh, surplus coalitions are coalitions that involve more parties than are strictly needed for a parliamentary majority. And that's a very interesting finding. And in fact, that's a finding that sort of sits at unease with the general coalition literature, although, funny enough, not necessarily with the empirics uh, in European politics. So there's quite a few scholars who've pointed out that surplus coalitions are also far more the norm than the theory suggests they should be. The theoretical assumption is that what we, you know, from a rational choicey kind of perspective is that what we should find is minimum winning coalitions. Yeah. So in, in the MENA context, a vast majority of coalitions are surplus coalition. There are a couple of minimum winning coalitions. There are very few minority governments. Yeah. Surplus coalitions tend to last the longest. So I can come back to that. Um, minority coalitions by nature of the fact that they're minority coalitions, they don't tend to last uh, that, that long. When it comes to explaining why surplus coalitions are so um, prevalent in the region, I think we have picked up three factors. One is uh, the need for broad-based power sharing in consociational or quasi-consociational settings such as Lebanon and Iraq. The prevalence uh, in many cases of exceptional circumstances, such as political transitions, the Yemeni coalition government, that's also some uh, something that uh, some of our contributors speak to. The Tunisian experience speak to exactly that. 
uh, but also post-conflict scenarios, for instance. And last but not least, it, it speaks to the fact that we're dealing with, with many authoritarian types of regimes where really patterns of co-optation, blame sharing, uh, but also incentives by opposition to gain access to state resources and patronage clearly play into these kind of surplus coalition and their formation. And, and one of the aspects of the coalitions, you know, I found really interesting is is the prominence of, of left-right coalitions and the point you make that decision-making powers around issues that are relevant to this divide will not really actually sit with the elected officials. And that seemed to, you know, to fit very well with a theme that emerged in some of the other contributions that showed that coalitions tend to reflect patronage and elite bargains more than they do really electoral results. So I was thinking that the results may not be so different, actually, than what we observe, you know, in a country like Jordan, where the elected parties or individuals don't form the government. Really, in both cases, other dynamics kind of dictate who will actually hold vital cabinet positions and make decisions, you know, rather than the elections. I think the real problem, in a way, is that this does not only happen in clearly authoritarian states, but it also happens in what might considered semi-democracies or quasi-democracies and a democracy like Tunisia. So we, in the period that we examined, there are also the Tunisian coalitions after the Arab Spring and before the, the coup by the current president. And, and so this is, this is quite uh, problematic in a way because it shows that, in fact, almost irrespective of the nature of the political system, the coalitions that are formed do not tend to have, particularly when it comes to left and right, and in particular when it comes to the economic issues, a lot of the decision-making does not go to the coalition itself. It is for somebody else to decide, uh, unelected officials or, you know, where the real authoritarian power is, or in the case of Tunisia, simply the fact that it is more or less the international community that decides what goes and what doesn't in terms of uh, economic uh, uh, decision-making. And that, I think, it's a problem in many ways, and maybe we'll discuss it later, but it's also something that is particularly significant if we are to compare what happens in the region to what happens elsewhere where coalition governments do exist. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But just to add also, and this is sort of also a theme that is recurrent in, in the literature, in the comparative literature on, on the Middle East, that the left-right divide is actually... Uh, fairly weakly formulated. You know, if you look at party programs, you know, parties of the left or parties of the right, you know, in terms of economic policies, uh, it's, it's, it's not necessarily that clear cut. And maybe the reason why we have so many coalitions, and that's the point that I wanted to allude to as well, that cut across this left-right divide is that, first of all, in terms of who makes economic policy, it doesn't matter, but it's also the, the boundaries, the lines are not that clear cut in terms of many Arab party programs between the left and the right. Maybe on a broader ideological level, yes. I'm not saying that there are no leftist parties and I'm not saying that there are no liberal parties in the economic sense or right wing, but in terms of the actual formulation of politics and what this actually means in practice, there is a, a lack of policy detail. And that may well be dictated by the fact that, you know, it doesn't really matter or, or other reasons, but it's certainly the, the, the case that, you know, that that might have helped cross that divide for many for many parties in terms of uh, coalition negotiations. But that's not to say the cleavages of sorts, like religious secular, for instance, or ethnic tribal sectarian or national, or as we've seen in the case of Yemen, the, the, the north-south cleavage don't matter in coalition negotiations and also in durability. 
And in fact, they do. And we'll come back to that in a second when I talk about durability. Yeah, I mean, please carry on. I interrupted your three points before, um, you know, before you got to durability. And, you know, of course, in your article, you note that um, durability is generally limited. So, you know, I'd love to discuss some of the factors that, you know, that lead to this, this lack of durability. So it's really important to make this distinction between duration and durability in research on coalition governance. So duration is more than the empirical observation of how long coalition governments last from the start date to the end date. Uh, durability speaks more to the chances of survival. But let me first talk about uh, duration. Uh, and on duration, really what's quite remarkable in the MENA context is that Below a veneer of seeming executive stability, there is a rather remarkable level of fluctuation and volatility with with regards to coalition durations. So vast majority of the the coalitions that we've looked at uh, have all experienced early dissolution. So they have not survived the full parliamentary term in office. And in fact, uh, ha- about half of the, the coalition governments we looked at collapsed at around the two-year mark, if not before. Yeah, And coalition failures, if you want to call them that, um, have occurred widely across, across, uh, across country cases, but also within countries across different coalitions. Uh, when it comes to uh, durability, as I said, you know, that's sort of the factors that, that determine the chances of survival, we mostly looked at what we call time-independent variables, like structural variables, um, system-level variables uh, that pertain directly to the characteristics of a coalition government, but also to some other system-level variables, such as, for instance, levels of parliamentary fractionalization, uh, regime type, levels of authoritarianism in, in, in terms of VDEM scores and so forth. There's a, there's a whole other set of variables that are usually looked at within the literature, and these are time-dependent variables, and they look at um, factors that are unpredictable effectively, for, exa- for example, uh, economic crisis or political crisis, yeah? a spike in protests, a spike in political violence, a spike in uh, inflation rate, and so forth. But we have not looked at these uh, these factors. So we only looked at these system level uh, variables. And, you know, given the limitations of, of that and the fact that more research needs to be done, we found two um, variables that seem to be statistically relevant um, and have some explanatory power. And th- th- these are the followings. In terms of positive association with durability, we find um, that seat majorities matter. So a more comfortable seat majority in parliament is associated with an increase in the average duration of coalition governments in the region uh, with each additional parliamentary seat, effectively buying a coalition 5.3 extra days in power. And we also find a negative, and that's probably the more interesting uh, association uh, with the prevalence of religious secular cleavage. And I appreciate that uh, many scholars will question you know, the validity and the stark contrast of this religious secular cleavage. And we can speak to that if you, you want to. But in our analysis, we give a justification why we think it's important to include that. But having said all this, uh, the, our findings reveal that uh, this cleavage, whenever it crosses a correlation, that is whenever you know it encompasses political parties that both from the secular and the religious camp, so to speak, it has a destabilizing effect on coalition durability, being associated with an average uh, loss of 513 days of governing. So it's quite a significant uh, loss. And 
the only way I can think and conceptualize about this at this point is that, you know, that chimes to some extent with the literature on uh, on cross-ideological cooperation and points that were raised by, for instance, Janine Clark about obstacles to high level of cooperation amongst uh, across this particular divide. And, you know, that that finding seems to align very closely uh, with this finding. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, how how this fits in with the broader literature. And, you know, Francesco also alluded earlier to how the special issue is sort of pushing back against regional exceptionalism. And I was hoping maybe, you know, we could speak a little bit more to, to some of the other dynamics that show this comparability between coalitions inside and outside of the region. Yeah, this is, you know, as I was telling you at the beginning, this was something that we were also informed by when we came up with the project. You know, the idea to see, well, we know what kind of happens among coalition governments elsewhere or what kind of tendencies one can uh, uh, pick out. Let's see what the study on Arab coalitions tell us about not only the Arab world, but how can we link maybe some of the tendencies, some of the findings to to broader debates. And I think that there's a, in fact, there's a good few. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick out maybe three that might be interesting. One is the, the, something that already Hendrik talked about, this idea of surplus coalitions. You know, when you have in a coalition more parties than you actually need to, uh, sometimes you, you have them because it's a kind of a national salvation coalition. Sometimes it's a post-authoritarian coalition that, like in Tunisia, for instance, needs to have a coalition that therefore needs a lot of parties to look legitimate, to, to appear at least legitimate in front of the electorate. All these kind of coalitions, in a way, that exist in the Arab world suffer from the same problems that national coalition governments uh, or national unity governments suffer from elsewhere. One example might be the fact that despite the fact that they like to be and present themselves as national unity, national salvation, that they're important to move the country from, you know, kind of turbulence to calmer waters, what ends up happening is that citizens and voters do not seem to be that enthused over the long term about the existence of such national unity governments because then they do not know how to apportion blame or to reward uh, uh, political parties. Like, who makes this? If everybody's in government and things go wrong, well, who, as, as voters, do, do we punish? Or if everything is going swimmingly, well, who do we reward for this? And I think this is something, this is hardly the case, though. Uh, so, so the idea is that this is something that we see elsewhere as, as well. You know, these kind of technocratic governments, national unity governments, grand coalitions, they they are maybe useful for a specific purpose at a specific point in time, but if they last too long, they, they confuse the voters, they don't enjoy uh, support, and in fact, they tend to turn people off uh, electoral participation. And I think if you want to take this to an extreme, the case of Tunisia is something that approaches this in a way, and it is something that other scholars had hinted to, um, thinking about Nadia Marzouki piece, in Merip, I think, which called it the rotten compromise, you know, that, you know, you compromise so much and you have so many parties in the coalition that, in fact, voters don't really know what to make of that because everybody is is in government. Before the election, they have conflicts, they, they, they fight each other, they offer different alternatives, but then they end up in government together. I think these kind of arrangements do not find the favor of voters in the longer term, uh, anywhere. It's true in the Arab world, and it's true uh, elsewhere as well. Another one that may be surprising and not 
very much talked about in the literature in general is the fact that external factors might matter quite a bit in how coalitions are formed, in what they try to do, and how long they might survive. So in, in our special issue, we have this comparison between Iraq and Palestine in a way uh, that you know we called it, I think we called it coalition making under occupation uh, or under the military presence and the political presence of very powerful external actors. And they have a huge impact on how a coalition government is formed among the local actors, because there are so many external resources and variables to take into account, then inevitably the local actors are not necessarily operating in autonomy and full independence. And I think this is what emerges from the peace on Iraq and Palestine, Palestine more obviously maybe. But something similar also happens in coalition governments elsewhere and even in established democracies. So in the peace, we talk a little bit about the fact that, for instance, Italy, Greece, during the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, suffered extensively from external interference and their coalition politics were very much influenced by the dictates, the ideas and suggestions that came from the outside world. And in the case of Italy and Greece, was particularly the European Union. The Berlusconi government fell because the European Union wanted it to fall and the government that was formed after that was some sort of technocratic national unity government that was basically made in Brussels. Uh, uh, it was not necessarily made in Rome. It certainly wasn't made by Italian voters anyway. And something even worse probably happened in, in Greece during that particular period of time. So again, I think this is something that maybe was not discussed very much before, but this finding from our cases on the Arab world maybe helps us to think about external interference in other cases that you know have to do with established democracies in completely different regions. Another one I think that is particularly important and, and quite interesting is how governments that are, or coalitions, sorry, that are cross-sectarian, cross-confessional, uh, like the ones that we find in, in Lebanon, we find in Iraq, have a tendency, again, to play maybe a positive role to stabilize the country, to allow the country to uh, uh, to come out of a conflict, to rediscover some sort of political stability. But if these arrangements uh, become permanent, or at least the voters have the impression that these arrangements become permanent, then they undermine the legitimacy of the political system. And what you see is kind of electoral defection from parties involved in this uh, uh, consociational democracy towards parties that offer an alternative that is non-sectarian. Again, we might think that this applies in a way only to Lebanon and, and, and Iraq, but that's not necessarily the case. We have a very good European case, and it's the case of Northern Ireland, where there is a consociational democracy, where every party more or less has to be empowered. The two communities have veto over major decisions while in the government coalition. But voters are kind of tired of this type of politics that simply entrenches confessional differences and allows the same parties to be in charge all the time and all together, and they start voting for an alternative, which kind of disrupts the, the whole system. And again, you know, I think this is quite interesting because you can see voters in Northern Ireland beginning to behave a bit like voters in Lebanon and Iraq, saying, well, we are kind of tired of this confessional system, consociational democracy, because it doesn't really deliver in the long term. And so let's try to switch 
to parties that do not have these confessional allegiances. The problem is that the very institutional mechanisms in place do not allow this alternative to actually enter the corridors of power. And then again, and this is particularly problematic, particularly in democracies, where then the kind of the participation of citizens, the turnout has a tendency to decrease because there is an increasing amount of disconnect between the political system and citizens. So think these are just three examples of how I think what we had in the special issue and what our contributors to the special issue found uh, that can apply to the broader literature on coalition governments, but also to real specific cases that we see elsewhere across across the world. And I, I mean, I said I only mentioned European cases, but but we can also broaden out even further and maybe uh, begin to think about what happens in other uh, semi-presidential and, and parliamentary systems outside of Europe and the Middle East. And we probably would find very similar similar dynamics. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And and I'm really struck by how many different contexts, you know, across different cases are included in the special issue. And you, of course, also note in your article, the rise of coalition governments in the region in particular since the 1990s. And I'm wondering what you think, you know, accounts for this fairly dramatic rise of coalitions. Yeah, thanks, Ezra. I mean, First of all, I mean, it's important to say really that coalition governments existed before 1990 in the, in the Middle East and North Africa. I mean, that they, they weren't invented in 1990 or 1993. You can go back um, to cases of coalition governance in Lebanon, back to the 1960s, if not before, Morocco, 1970s as well, 1980s. You could even include the coercive Ba'ath-led coalitions uh, in Syria uh, from the 1970s onwards. So there is a precursor. Um, it's also correct to say that, you know, that in terms of frequency, there is significant increase uh, in the number of coalitions from the early 1990s onwards. And that's evident in both uh, Francesco and my analysis, but also in Valeria and Mohammed's piece. And in, in their introduction, actually, they present a really neat graph that shows, you know, the uppick in instances of multi-party governments from 1990 onwards. They trace uh, the number of political parties in government I think from the 1960s and 70s onwards, and you see a progressive rise up until the 1990s, and then the curve becomes much steeper from the 1990s onwards, so much so that by now uh, we are um, at, on average, four political parties per government in the 2000s. And that, that, is, that excludes, as far as Valeria and Mohammed are concerned, the non-partisan regimes in the, in the Arabian Gulf. Um, so as with, you know, life in general, I think there's several factors that really exp- help to explain, account for uh, this rise in multi-party governments, some of which are tied to, I think, region-wide trends and others are more country-specific. And you need to sort of unpack this when you when you look at this kind of question, really. Uh, and I suppose, and this is you know, quite standard knowledge uh, within the discipline, is that the biggest contributing factor concerns the noticeable shift across many of these polities in the region from single-party populist or non-partisan regimes to liberalized uh, autocracies. And that happened from the 1970s onwards, but that gained pace in the 1990s particularly with rising demands for democratization internationally, but also with the democratic transitions happening in Eastern, Southern uh, Europe, in Latin America, and to some extent also in East Asia. In the Arab MENA context, this political liberalization was initiated largely in a top-down fashion. We all know that kind of stuff uh, involving the introduction of nominally democratic institutions, involving also plural elections and party pluralism. 
Um, this liberalization was uh, also largely instrumental and reflected more a change in incumbent strategies than a genuine attempt at democratization. And as a consequence of this process, parliaments became more fragmented, more plural, and regimes more apt at co-opting oppositions into the executive through the formation of coalition governments. Of course, I think this is a very broad brush argument, and you know you have to supplement it by closer consideration of country-specific cases and circumstances, as well as the uprisings of 2011 and 2012, which, again, are another point in time which opened up plural politics and the possibility for coalition formation, particularly, in, as we've seen in Tunisia, but then also in Libya uh, and Egypt. Um, I suppose one important uh, point to note in this context is that coalition governments have very, very different purposes in very different contexts. And in some contexts, they must be treated as part and parcel of broader regime coalitions, quite frankly, Algeria is a case in point, Syria, Mauritania as well. Mauritania has a surplus coalition. You know, the, the, the ruling party doesn't need any partners right, to govern. But yet, you know, there are some affiliates that are in government. They give, they give ministerial uh, posts. And as such, it, it might make sense to treat these executive coalitions as part of broader regime coalitions uh, and as a mean of, means to co-opting like, the loyal opposition into the regime. But in other cases... It's important to also um, uh, note that these are born out of genuine uh, need for stable and inclusive governments uh, and uh, the need for um, stable parliamentary majorities. And that's the case in context of democratic transitions. We've already talked about Tunisia. It also applies to Yemen in the early 1990s, Libya in 2011, 2012, but also under cons uh, consociational and quasi-consultational systems of government, you know, with highly fragmented um, party landscapes where really governance can only take place through coalitions. You know? And that's the case, you know, as we know, in Iraq, Lebanon, but also to some extent uh, in Iraqi Kurdistan. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, and one country, you know, that I was thinking about that, that has had a long history of coalition governments in the region is Israel. And I know the special issue deals with the Arab MENA and, you know, therefore excludes Israel. But I Wonder if any parallels can be drawn, you know, between Israel and other countries in the region in terms of these coalition governments. Obviously, we didn't look at Israel in 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 the special issue, and we, we limited ourselves to the to Arab countries, to not not even to all the Arab countries, but to select Arab countries. There's maybe a couple of things that 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 can link what we've done with coalition making and coalition politics in Israel. And the first aspect, and it appears quite clearly in one of the, the articles as well, is in the portfolio allocation uh, once coalitions are, are, are set up. How do we decide who gets what in some ways? And we realize, there's also another piece about Iraq where, we, where this comes, comes, comes out quite clearly, quite clearly, sorry, that, that you know, there's a lot of bargaining in, in many ways about who gets what. And you can see clearly that some parties are simply interested in accessing government to distribute patronage resources, you know, uh, uh, or clientelism in, in some ways. And I think this is something that happens in Israeli coalitions as well, where there's a couple of parties, and I'm thinking of particular about one party, Shas, that is quite well known to accept to be in coalition with pretty much anyone, really, as long as it is part of the coalition, in order to secure, for instance, resources for their own ultra-Orthodox community, so, you know, that state resources are directed towards them, and that the state doesn't do any sort of deal with the Palestinians that might lead to giving up Jerusalem, for instance. So, you know, so there are these kind of parties who are 
they are quite willing to go into coalition with anyone, really, as long as their couple of priorities are respected. Uh, and I think that happens as well in, in Israeli coalitions. Doesn't only happen in the case of Iraq, doesn't only happen in the case of, of Morocco or, or Algeria. So I think this is an, an aspect that is particularly interesting that maybe can speak to what happens elsewhere. The second point, I think, is that there is, in terms of, of coalition making, coalition formation, that it takes quite a long time to come up with, with a coalition. That, that depends, obviously, on fragmentation. And fragmentation is also what we see in several Arab countries. And, and it's a characteristic of the Israeli of Israeli political system, you know, partly due, obviously, uh, uh, to, the, to the electoral system, but also partly to the fact that it's a very ideologically divided country. So, you know, to form a coalition, sometimes it takes quite a long time because the winning party, the party winning at the polls, in fact, might only control 23, 24, 25 seats out of 120 in Israel. So it requires the future prime minister to go out and look for, you know, 35, maybe 40 seats uh, because he's got only 25 uh, 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 available to him. So that requires quite a bit of time. Uh, it requires a lot of negotiations. It requires a lot of horse trading. And it requires to then have coalitions that are that are quite large, where partners, to refer to my previous point, come in simply because, well, I'll go in. It doesn't really matter who the prime minister is or the other party. I just want to go in and I would say yes if I get this ministry so that I can deliver these goods to my constituency, and that's all I'm interested in. So I think there is maybe, you know, something to be said about comparing some of the dynamics of coalition making in the countries that we looked at with what happens in Israeli politics. But I'm pretty sure that we can also take it way beyond Israeli politics, in fact. I would would just pick up on this point, actually, Francesco, and this is not to, to dis- disagree with what you're saying, but, you know, a lot of what, what has been said about Israeli politics applies to Dutch politics, to Belgian politics. There are high levels of fragmentation, largely because the electoral threshold is so low. You know, you have parties that enter with 1%, 1% even less, 0.8, like the, the, the last Dutch election have, have proven that point. Also, where coalition formation can take months, like in the Belgian case, again, we have cases where coalition formation has taken over a year. And so there, there are quite a few similarities there too. And you could also say that that applies to sort of this special interest office-seeking kind of behavior of some political parties with their constituency. Irish politics um, is a good example of, of this as well. So I think, and this is also one of the reasons why, you know, we all recognize the problems of Israeli democracy as a democracy, I think. You know, that's that's fair to say. It's not an un problematic notion. But for the most part, when you look at, you know, where Israel is discussed, it's mostly within the context of the broader Western democratic coalitions literature. Not so much Turkey. Turkey is an interesting case. And, and you know, we had a lot of debates of whether or not to include Turkey. And, you know, when you do quancy kind of stuff, you're you are on the hunt for coalitions, right? Because you want to increase the number of N. And so with Turkey, we would have Quite a, you know, that poses a whole new issue in the sense that, you know, you suddenly have 20 coalitions in one country and so that there's there's a problem clearly there. But we, we in the end, decided, you know, to stick to the, the Arab world because we felt that um, at least there is some level of cohesion there. And, you know, we looked pretty much at all coalition governments, you know, at least the ones that we've identified between the periods uh, that, we, that, we, that we specified. And 
before I let you guys go today, I also wanted to ask, you know, what do you think are are some of the key dynamics that still need to be explored in terms of, you know, coalition governments in the region? Yeah, I, 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 I think in general, it needs to be recognized that what we've done with this special issue is basically a first step at trying to understand some of the dynamics of, of coalition politics in the region. So any of the aspects that we've covered lend themselves to future investigation, verification, be it in different country contexts, uh, or be it in with through broader comparisons, for instance, the, you know the, the the really interesting stuff that's done by Valeria and uh, Mohammed on portfolio allocation. That that would be so fascinating to actually look cr- across the region uh, at dynamics and to to see whether you know some of their findings can be replicated um, elsewhere. So really, the, the the bottom line is that we scratched the surface. Yeah, we've started a conversation. I would say. Uh, on coalition governance, which has hitherto not existed in that format. You know, you find some case studies here and there um, embedded in various different types of analysis, but not honing in specifically on coalition governance. You know, if you were to ask me what I would like to do, and I guess to some extent Francesco, Valeria and I are doing this because we're we're in the process of um, writing a book on coalition governance that hopefully will come out in 2025 or 2026, is to expand on some of the variables that we look at, like particularly, you know, cross-nationally. And I mentioned earlier the the, the time-dependent variables, for instance, in addition to the time-independent variables, that's something that I really think uh, is needed and ought to flow into analysis uh, of particularly government durability. Um, I also think that, you know, it would be really uh, worthwhile to, to look at what is the impact of coalition governments on patterns of decision-making, policy-making, governments more broadly, you know, and how does this compare within the region to the single and non-party governments, you know, you know, are they less effective uh, in terms of uh, running countries? So how, how do they compare? What, what's, the, what's the outcome side of coalition governments? And I think that that would be also really interesting. And last but not least, and I'll shut up and then Maybe Francesco has some uh, other things to say. I think it would be really good, and Francesco alluded to this already, is to broaden out the analysis beyond the MENA to look at other non-Western uh, dynamics and to bring the literatures together. There's a lot written on South Africa, for instance. There's some stuff on Latin America, also some stuff on India and um, and other East Asian uh, uh, countries, and you know, to bring to bring the findings together and to sort of really try to influence how we think more broadly about coalition governments globally. As Andrew said, I'm, I'm always very interested in broadening it out and leaving the region in some ways and, and look at dynamics within the region and see if they can be found elsewhere. And if yes, what does it mean? And if not, what does it mean? And I think looking at other cases in the global south might be very useful. In a way, then we run into uh, the issue of how many cases we can actually rely on because obviously... The presidential model or the presidential republic, as Jean Blondel calls it, is is obviously more widespread. So maybe there are issues with that. But there are other parliamentary and semi-presidential systems out there in the different regions that Hendrik mentioned that we could look at. And I think that would be quite, quite useful, particularly because maybe now it is the time to have a look at dynamics within the global south or within different parts of the global south, rather than always referring to, well, this is what happens in Western democracies and this is what happens elsewhere. Maybe there's a good way of short-circuiting the the, the West and just look 
at dynamics in, in, in the global south. I think that would be one direction that, that could be quite useful. And by the way, not only in terms of looking at coalition politics, but looking at all sorts of other institutions and political phenomena in that respect. Well, I think that's probably a good place for us to leave it today. So thank you both so much for joining. It's really been super interesting to talk with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ezra. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for hosting this. And um, uh, thank you very much, Ezra. Thank you again. And thank you to everyone that listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Law and Governance Podcast.